Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm going to show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. The Medical School HQ Podcast, session number 67. In reality, is that they work maybe 10 hours, I mean, 10 weeks during the summer and full-time. And then in the semesters, they are doing 10 to 15 hours a week. Hey, this is Z-Dog MD, rapper, physician, legendary turntable health revolutionary, and part-time gardener. And you're listening to the Medical School HQ podcast, hosted by the irredeemably awesome Ryan Gray. Welcome back. I am your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and I believe that competition amongst your pre-med and medical student peers is detrimental to becoming a great physician. In this podcast, we show you how collaboration, hard work, and honesty are critical to becoming a superior physician in today's healthcare environment. Welcome back, folks. In today's podcast, my guest, Dr. Jose Cavazos, and I are going to show you what pre-med life is like as a possible MD-PhD student. Dr. Cavazos, who is the Assistant Dean for the MD-PhD program at the University of Texas Health Science Center San Antonio School of Medicine, brings you the voice of an admissions member telling you what a successful applicant looks like to him. We cover life after medical school as well for an md PhD graduate. All that and a lot more. Dr. Cavazos, welcome to the show. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and getting into medicine? Okay, my name is Jose Cavazos. I'm a professor at the University of Texas Health Sciences Center in San Antonio. Um, Professor of neurologist. I am an epilepsy researcher and clinician, and I'm the assistant dean for the MD PhD program. Now, Your question, Ryan, is how did I get to this spot? And um, my path is um, a little bit atypical in the sense that I started with an MD and then uh, decided that I wanted to pursue more research and push for a PhD, and then I did my residency. 
And after my residency, I then started uh, faculty formally, uh, you know, first in Colorado and, and now here in Texas. Okay. So you started off purely as an MD uh, graduate and then later on in life figured out that you like the research. As I was going through the pre-medical education component, I just got fascinated with uh, the um, the basis, the fundamentals, and I felt that I was um, not getting enough um, critical thinking or, um, you know, substance, let's put it this way. Um, and I often tended to go back to why. And those questions of the why uh, kept bugging me uh, quite often. Um, and perhaps that's one of the signs that uh, undergrads, pre-medical uh, students right now must be considering if they are fascinated by the specific reasons and and willing to contribute as to why certain pathophysiological processes happen, et cetera, et cetera. You know, biomedical research and MD-PhD programs are certainly one possibility. Okay. And we'll get into that a little bit more. I, I definitely want to get into what pre-med students should be thinking. But I want to hit on your path a little bit more. Where did you do your medical uh, education? Okay. So I'm an international graduate. I went, I did my medical school in my hometown. I was born in Monterrey, Mexico. Texas used to be part of my state. Um, so I, um, I went and did my medical school there uh, in my, uh, I mean, I'm dual citizen in my country, um, uh, the, in Mexico. Um, it's a seven-year program. And so it is a pre-medical undergrad and medical together. Um, you know, it's, as I said, it's, it's somewhat atypical too, but nevertheless, that's the way, um, I mean, compared to other uh, graduates or paths uh, of some of my colleagues, um, this is not an unusual path, uh, but it is different than the MD-PhD program. Okay. Except. Okay. Now, I don't know how briefly you can talk about it, but I I haven't had any international grads on that I can think of. Where you're you're going to be session sixty seven, so sixty seven straight weeks. Uh, I did have a Caribbean student on, so another mm-hmm. international a graduate. Mm-hmm. What was it like to come back to the states to practice? Any big hardships that you had to overcome, or was it? Did you find it easy and was maybe just a little bit more paperwork? More paperwork. <laughs> I mean, there's no question about it. Every state has uh, wants everything, all the paperwork, all the way to the back. Um, I am um, licensed uh, in uh, just Texas at the present time, but, you know, originally, you know, I... I did part of my training in Wisconsin, so I actually took the licensing test in the state of Wisconsin. Um, I then went and obtained, a, uh, you know, did my residency at Duke, and I um, I got a, a medical license at 
uh, and North Carolina. And then subsequently, I went to Colorado and again, did the entire paperwork again. And lastly, I came to Texas. So, you know, what I mean by paperwork is, is considerable and is actually much more um, it's larger. Now, obviously, as an international graduate, you always have a, you always have a question uh, as to the depthness um, of your knowledge. I can tell you that, um, you know, that's certainly something that I push me to be in the top 5% or 10% of my specialty and I certainly um, you know if you look at all my I mean my scores uh, across the board in uh, the specialties they are uh, top notch good okay yeah it's it's definitely something we'll we'll cover more in depth later for, for as a program students. director uh, I'm also a program director so I also evaluate uh, individuals who are coming from um multiple other schools. And I can tell you that one important aspect to understand about international medical graduates is that there's a lot of heterogeneity of the strength of their programs. Some are amazing. Mm -hmm. Some are not equivalent to the education and quality controls of the United States. Yeah, and and that's something I try to get across to students. Just because you go to Harvard doesn't mean you have a free ride anywhere. You get out of it what you put into it, no matter where you go. Exactly. And you mentioned you're a program director. I'm assuming it's for neurology. You, you haven't mentioned no. that you're a neurologist. Um, Yes, I did say at the beginning okay. that I was a neurologist, okay. but nevertheless, I'm a program director for a f- sub-fellowship, a fellowship of neurology, okay. and that's uh, clinical neurophysiology, um, which is uh, the guys who read brain waves and do EMGs. Okay. The squiggly lines. Yes, indeed. <laughs> now, my, my wife, Allison, who's a co-host on the show sometimes, she's a neurologist, I think I mentioned to you in an email. I see. And and we were both very skeptical at the start of her medical training, her neurology training about what those squiggly lines meant. But now <laughs> she swears there's there's stuff in there that she can read. You bet. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's talk a little bit about being a pre-med and those considerations about going to an MD PhD program. Obviously the the decision to go to medical school is a big one all in of itself. Mm-hmm. How how are pre medical students supposed to know that an MD PhD is what they want to go into? Well, that's actually um, a bit of a revelation that happens when you, as a um, pre med undergraduate, um, perhaps to f- to become rounded, do a little bit of research in the lab. Uh, typically a wet lab. And uh, what happens is in in those settings, uh, you might be exposed to individuals who are um, clinician scientists, or um, you might have a mentor who is a clinician scientist in some institutions that that may be one of the cases. Um, You may be exposed to students who are undergoing this path. Um, Now, Truly speaking, uh, let me let me just back backtrack and say, as 
program director for an MD-PhD program, what you are looking for in an applicant is an individual who has had sustained research experience for several years. And that is one of the reasons why when you're when we're reaching out and doing recruiting, we go to the early uh, uh, classes because what you want to say is, is, is indicate that you know, this is a potential avenue. And if you want to go that route, you have to do a series of things. Um, now, there are people who are late bloomers and in their, you know, as, as I said, as they are doing their, um, their requirements for, um, for uh, you know, having a, you know, balance application and, you know, checking all the boxes of volunteering and clinical, et cetera. You say, well, uh, there's a section for research. Let me do some stuff on it. So as people do that a particular box, they may, may say, wow, I mean, this is fascinating. And in my particular case, I did, didn't have that experience as a pre-med and um, and so, you know, certainly that was what called me to say, well, let me take a gap year after my medical education to pursue some research um, because I I understood. And then during my clerkships, I I was exposed to individuals um, who were clinician scientists. Uh, I did uh, um, several I mean, six months at. Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. And, you know, some of the individuals who I, I was exposed were clearly clinician scientists with, you know, a, a very different career path than the traditional clinician educator or clinician taking care of patients. You mentioned what you're looking for as a, as a director of an MD-PhD program several years of research. Now, if, if I do the math, a typical pre-med student is applying at the end of their junior year mm-hmm. or, the, or the summer. And if, if you do the math on several years of mm-hmm. research, they either know starting out as a freshman very early on that mm-hmm. they need to jump on this or they're already behind the curve, it sounds like. Well, we have a mixture. Certainly, the most important aspect that we look is what are the opportunities that individuals have. Um, so it is not the same for an individual who is going on an R1 or an Ivy League type of institution where research labs are pushed all the way from first year in your freshman classes and, and you know, those opportunities are discussed uh, quite openly by, um, you know, the faculty. And in some extent, it is expected um, uh, for some individuals to have those types of experiences, regardless if they are going to go straight into the MD path, period, or PharmD or whatever other uh, uh, pre-health path. But what... I mean, so individuals who might be in, you know, a community college transitioning to a major university or something of that nature, you know, 
they are going to be starting their junior year and they say, oh, wow, this exists. And they certainly will be behind. Um, now, we we look at those candidates too, um, you know, quite keenly. And essentially the issue is from the time that they make a decision that this is something that they want to pursue, the question is what they have done the, the most with their opportunities. I mean, some individuals, you can also argue that uh, maybe coming from an Ivy and very shallow record. And you will say, perhaps, you know, they did not take advantage of the opportunities. And so the question is, what are, what are these individuals made of? Okay. I want to ask a question about something you mentioned earlier for, for us that don't know the, the research side of the house. What, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned wet lab. Can you expand on what that is real quick? Sure. Um, a wet lab experience is, is the typical um, pre-medical uh, basic science uh, discipline. Let me say biochemistry, genetics, molecular biology, um, physiology, pharmacology, uh, biochemistry, I mean, you name it. So those are the traditional disciplines that individuals will eventually will get PhDs on. Uh, neuroscience, for example, will be in my case. I mean, I did a, that's my, my PhD um, on. Um, now, a wet lab means that you do research, in biomedical research, in a laboratory where experiments are taking place. And the reason why it's called wet lab is because, I mean, you typically are mixing solutions and it, they are typically wet. <laughs> um, um, but, I mean, in, in, in truth of, I mean, that is in compare, for example, to other types of experiences which are okay and adequate and sometimes uh, what we're looking for, um, such as, working with patients and doing clinical translational research. Uh, But even in those cases, what we're looking is for some uh, research that is able to um, assess uh, fundamental questions about the biology of what's going on. As you move closer to healthcare outcomes or community type of research, um, the level of the scientific inferences that you are able to develop is they they tend to be less and less, and so you essentially recognize, for example, that there is an association between you know let me just say something simple smoke uh, tobacco smoking and lung cancer. <laughs> so an clinical association like that, in order to be proven. You have to do a series of scientific tests where you are able to dissociate the compounds that are associated with with this problem and assess the level of carcinogenesis, understand the mechanism, and 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 understand how the pro, the pathophysiological process is about. And so that's typically done in pre-medic, you know. Uh, um, animal research or in biological sample research. Um, I mean, it doesn't necessarily need to use animals, but biological tissues. Okay. 
Now we got that straight. Um, one of the big questions we get all the time is, do I have to major in chemistry? Do I have to major in biology? And those are typically general going to medical school. Mm-hmm. If I want a PhD now, do I... Is that same question still exists. Are you looking specifically for science majors or can a humanities major get all the prereqs and get their research in and still be considered on the same level as a science major? Um, yes. I mean, many cases. I mean, let me just, um, you know, tell you an individual who we would love to have um, as an accepted student in my program. Um She began as a music and philosophy major and actually completed that, but um, realized in her last year that she really loved research. And then uh, in the subsequent post-bac and studies, pre-med, etc., did studies to have the pre-medical requirements. So it's possible one obvious concern and of an individual who is coming with that track uh, is a little bit how uh, whether the quality of upper level courses beyond the pre-medical requirements is sufficient to be able to have challenged themselves to push themselves to the next level. Now, let's say that that conversion happened in their junior year. So, you know, that's understandable. Um, you quite often, MD-PhD students uh, do a one or one year or two year postback and uh, where they are completely immersed in research to improve their, uh, you know, qualifications. But many of our top candidates across the country um, are individuals who are just straight coming from uh, from uh, uh, undergraduate, typically from a solid undergraduate program where they have had research experiences throughout three three years or at least two years uh, solidly throughout their um, their training. Okay. You mentioned that you took a gap year. And you mentioned mm-hmm. that a lot of students take a post back or, or maybe gap years and, and what you just said, immerse themselves in research. If a student out there is thinking, wow, I think maybe I want to do an MD-PhD, but I don't have that much research, let me take a gap year before I apply. During that gap year, would you consider one day a week in that lab over that year immersion? Or nope. would you consider <laughs> full-time five, six days a week Full-time. Well, it, it will be some, I mean, it, it will be really more the five, six, you know, uh, day uh, type of immersion to make up for, um, I mean, when we're talking about an individual having, for example, two to three years of research experience coming from college, um, what we're thinking in reality is that they work maybe 10 hours, I mean, 10 weeks during the summer and full-time, and then in the semesters, they are doing 10 to 15 hours a week um, as their continuity along with taking a full load of classes, et cetera, et cetera, uh, which will be 
essentially being challenged uh, to proceed with 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 this. Now, um, we are looking. I mean, obviously, earlier on, uh, many of these uh, um, undergraduates are doing these research experiences completely unpaid, but uh, you know, postdocs are typically you know funded positions, and so. For example, the, one of the premier uh, places I will be actually recruiting there uh, in a couple of weeks is at NIH. And so the NIH has an immense you know, variety of research laboratories. They have a program called the IRTA program, and it is a program where uh, qualified students uh, who have just finish uh, their under, I mean, undergraduate uh, training, um, or they are about to finish, they apply to this program and uh, they are able to be uh, selected and paid to work in a lab, on a world-class lab, research lab. And so those are um, amazing opportunities that many students uh, have. As long as the government doesn't shut down anymore, please. <laughs> well, that's, a, that's you know, another well, story. Indeed. I mean. <laughs> so, MD-PhD obviously is a very unique, very hard um, path, a different path, a longer path. Do you have to be an MD-PhD to be a physician scientist? No. But um, it gives, I mean, it, so, so let's start talking about what MD-PhD programs are. MD-PhD programs, um, essentially, you still are going to be going out to a series of interviews. That's the last, I mean, and maybe invest um, five or $6,000 in between interviews, applications, etc. in AMCAS. But once you're done with that, you enter a situation where your entire tuition fees for the MD, for the PhD are entirely paid. In addition to that, you are giving a stipend, certainly a, a pre-doctoral st- student stipend, typically somewhere in the range of, um, you know, 22 to 32 perhaps in some cities. Uh, in my program, we we provide twenty six thousand, um, but given San Antonio's uh, low cost of living, that's actually probably much more than the thirty two that may be getting in New York City. So, in terms of um, being able to afford some uh, decent living situation, um, in any case, um, after completing your PhD and MD, and you're paid that throughout each of the seven to nine years um, of both medical and um, PhD education. Now, that's the majority of the MSTPs, or actually all the MSTPs, as well as the, um, you know, mo- many of the fully funded MD-PhDs. And uh, I, I, explain real quick the MSTP. Okay. So there are 45 programs in the United States that receive NIH funding in a training award called the Medical uh, Scientist Training Program. Um, 
These are program. This is a NIH T32 ap application to the National Institute of General Medical Sciences. It's a application that essentially is a review, a programmatic review by a study section. That the training that goes on in that particular institution is fantastic. There are other NIH awards, uh, which are, uh, for example, F30s. These are individual awards that are obtained by MD-PhD students. Um, you know, my program, for example, has uh, if um, one of the highest um, number of F30 awards per MD-PhD student. And, um, and the reason for that is because as we don't have an MSDP funding, we're a relatively young program. You, those programs typically have been around for uh, 15, 20 or more years um, before they obtain that type of funding. Um, they, um, you know, you, you go for other types of, or you apply for other types of uh, funding. My program in particular, um, you know, it's, it's going for uh, applying for the MSTP funding. But that essentially is, they are funding about 20% of the slots of the positions that exist in a particular program. Now, if you look at uh, MD-PhD programs, um, there are programs that have, the mega programs, there's a couple that have over 150 MD-PhD students. That's over, starting from, um, including all the students from year one to, to year seven, nine, 10, in some rare cases. Um, and then there are about, 10 more programs that are over 100 positions total. And that means that, uh, you know, the mega programs, they may have 25 positions per year. The small, the medium-sized programs or the large programs may have between, there's actually 13 programs with more than 13 positions per year. But, you know, most programs are going to be somewhere in the 5 to 10 positions per year, and the size of the program is about 60 to 80. And that will say um, out of those 45, um, the great majority, or at least 50%, are in that sweet spot. Okay. Are there are there any programs where a student has to pay for their MD-PhD program, or are all of the spots paid for? Well, there are 109 programs or 109 schools indicated that they had MD-PhD students in 2012. I didn't, I have not looked, the data for 2013 was just released. Um, but, you know, uh, there are some of those who are not fully funded and they are giving them some, um, you know, they are paying for the PhD portion, but not the MD. Um, some of actually the Ivy Leagues, um, have some extra spots that because they're prestige, some people would rather have it from, from those places and they end up paying for the MD portion of tuition, which can be rather hefty. Expensive. Um, exactly. Yeah. Um, so the advantage of an MD-PhD student is that they don't really accumulate debt uh, during their MD or PhD, they do not accumulate debt 
um, obviously after they become residents or, or postdocs, and then they, they have the ability to use the NIH loan repayment um, program to pay back even the uh, undergraduate loans. And so in a sense, it's a mechanism that allows that not to consider, not to think about financial considerations if you keep doing this program or keep doing this, this career path. Now, in the, in the end, we do not make as much, I mean, as uh, private practitioners. And so um, there's reasons why you do this, because you love to do research. You, are, you want to be challenging and being able to influence health and, you know, have a, a footprint um, that is much larger than just helping this particular patient. Now, as clinician scientists, we're able to still see patients and still be able to do research. And, and that's a very uh, rewarding career uh, for many of us. I mean, most, most of us are going to be in academic uh, careers. And um, many of us are doing um, basic science investigation. Some of us do clinical science investigation. Um, and um, some of us are able to to really bridge the gap between um, bench research and all of these publications and discoveries and and be able to bring it up to patients. Okay. But you mentioned a couple of things that an MD PhD that's out in the out working now out of school can do. Are there any other unique things that an MD PhD graduate can do that maybe a normal a, a normal physician can't? Well, another thing um, is um, industries, uh, and I'm talking about pharmaceutical industry, uh, but also device industry, is fairly interested in individuals uh, with this type of training who are in, who are able to translate premium research uh, discoveries into clinical platforms, and that idea of, of doing. Uh, taking preclinical trials and getting phase one and phase two studies done, um, you know, that it, it's a very particular expertise. Um, many of these individuals, many of these uh, individuals who go into pharmaceutical of this type are individuals who have practiced for uh, a couple of years, maybe two, three years, or they have done some clinical medicine, but at the same time, they have gone in to do postdocs or projects where they do this type of discovery. Um, now, some of us do move eventually into administration like um, like I, I am. Um, this is a little portion of my time, relatively speaking. Um, every week, I still see patients. Every week, I interpret uh, some Squiggle, squiggle lines, EEGs, which is, you know, what 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 I do as um, one of the neurophysiologists, um, and you know, every day or every week, I'm also involved with research proposals, reviewing papers, you know, etc., uh, etc. Et um, okay, so there's a lot out there. Indeed. Yeah. 
Now, you, you did say, and you asked the question about individuals who just do the MD and then go on for research. Why are not they, uh, I mean, if you look at the average age of an individual who gets the first RO1 and is a physician, um, you know, the age for those who are MD-PhD and MD is exactly the same. So what happens for the MDs who are obtaining for their, you know, research, RO1, NIH grants, etc., is that they earn their stripes by doing additional research training as postdocs after their completion of their, um, their uh, either residency or during their residency. So um, there's no shortcuts. Um, the advantage of doing the MD-PhD, in a sense, is that you're able to take, I mean, we accept a student for the program. We don't accept it necessarily so that they, they become, um, you know, medical physics or biochemistry or geneticist or whatever. What we're looking for is the best candidate. And you are able to take that risk of, you know, doing a rotation in another field that may not be necessarily what you had been exposed as an undergraduate in researcher. And in, in the contrary, once you have done and finished or you're doing your residency, you typically are more advanced in terms of your, uh, you know, life car- lifetime career. You may be already having a significant other. You may have children. You may. So the amount of risks that you take are much smaller. And so you go more for a sure thing. Uh, and so that's... Um, you know, on the other hand, if you persist, you have a very high chance of succeeding. But, it, you know, not as many people enter successfully at that level. Okay. You mentioned just now what you would consider a strong candidate for an MD-PhD program. I know, I know it's hard to say this is the perfect candidate that we want because every application is different. Mm-hmm. One question we get all the time is, what, what is the minimum amount of research do I need? Is, is there a number that you guys look for, or is it just more quality-type research? It's more about quality and depthness. There are people, for example, that have done five years of research, including some postback or whatever, but they were acting as technicians, and their thinking is still at tech, a technician level. There are individuals who do a year and a half of research, but gosh, I mean, they came up with independent ideas. They, um, I mean, the letters of recommendation from the PhD, I mean, from their research advisors are critical. Now, on the side of, you know, the usual thing that we compare to MDP, to other MD applicants, you know, we do need to convince the medical school that this individual is interested in becoming a clinician too. 
So they need to have some, done some shadowing, but rather than doing, you know, 500 hours of shadowing and things or volunteering and et cetera, we're looking for, you know, 100 hours of, of uh, shadowing, a little bit of volunteering and mostly research, 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 research. And it is quality, as you indicated. I'm glad you brought up the technician portion because we get the same problem with undergrads who quote unquote volunteer in the hospital <laughs> and what they're doing is, is like I did. I, I made the mistake of, mm-hmm. of, of going and, and showing up saying, Hey, I want to volunteer. And I got put at the information desk showing people where the elevators were. How does, how does a student start off? and get that quality research experience, how do, how do they be a little bit more forthright and say, this is what I want to do, give me the good stuff, or should they start in more of that technician role, get a little experience, and then have those conversations of, okay, now I want to be higher up on the on the totem pole? So, so typically, that's the way uh, it, it works. I mean, it is pretentious, to come uh, seriously, I mean, uh, you know, as a uh, as an undergrad with oh, give me the good stuff, and um, you know, I, oh, by the way, I don't know anything, um, and I don't have any experience whatsoever. Um, so you need to earn your stripes. Um, no, we are not expecting necessarily publications; they are a bonus, and how generous some research advisors are in terms of putting individuals as, you know, third, fifth, t- you know, whatever, 10th author uh, versus, you know, having a single publication, but they are first author or second author, or they had a significant take on a particular project. So often, you know, even if, if it is, I'm going to, I'm going to start working with this postdoc or this graduate student to take this particular project to another piece. But it is rather than I'm just washing dishes for the lab, you know, which is another common equivalent to what you were indicating, um, is I want to take a particular area of, of the science and, you know, and really help out. So what you do is certainly you might start as the lab washer, but you pay, you open your eyes to everything that goes on and, you know, you start asking questions. You start reading about it. You start talking yourself uh, into the, the research lab of what's going on. And, you know, um, it may not be necessarily that you are, are having those conversations with the PI, you might be having those conversations initially with your, um, you know, the supervising graduate student or supervising uh, postdoc or, or even technician. And then as, as you understand better what goes on in, in a particular lab or a particular area of the science, then you start thinking and owning, owning some aspects of that research. Um, and then you need to to make it known to the PI um, what your aspirations are. And most PIs are very open to this because, you know, some of them say maybe this kid 
comes back into our MD-PhD program if they are in a, one of those places and <clears throat> even do their PhD in my lab. So, I mean, certainly that's a, um, a very good thing that can happen. There's a, a great quote that I love that says, the harder I work, the luckier I get. You bet. <laughs> and that's exactly what you said. You put, put in the effort and opportunities will come if, if you want them. Indeed. Do you have any final words of wisdom for a pre-med student out there that's possibly looking at an MD-PhD program? Well, obviously, um, SDN has a fantastic um, and very active physician scientist forum. Um, sometimes it's uh, depressing because uh, some, you know, NIH is is not giving grants, etc. But the reality is that even uh, in 2013, 14% of the ideas that were submitted to the NIH, which, by the way, they were a record number, got funded. And the reality is that MD-PhD students and graduates are going to have a better chance of competing for those awards and being able to stay in academia during the tough years as compared to the, you know, uh, right, you know, uh, very plentiful days. Um, those happen. I mean, we had a doubling of the NIH in 2003, but we're losing those efforts uh, by inflation and other measures. Okay. Um, lastly, obviously, um, the, YouTube, um, the, the YouTube, um, uh, link, um, you know, some people may be able to take a look at, um, you know, what the stats are, um, look at the AAMC uh, website. There is a very nice portion for MD, PhDs, uh, stu- uh, students and applicants. Um, and lastly, email. Email uh, 10 fairs um, in July. There's a great fair at the NIH that is open to all pre-med students um, who may want to see all of the MD-PhD program directors are pretty much up there. Um, And so it's a great opportunity to uh, see and compare and and talk to MD-PhD students uh, directors, administrators, etc. Wow, I hope you got a ton of great information out of that. Dr. Cavazos was kind enough to take some time out of his day and share what it's like. Obviously, I know you like to hear information from admissions members because that's at, when I was a pre-med, that's who I wanted to hear information from. So, Dr. Cavazos, as the assistant dean for the MD-PhD program and also the assistant dean for the the medical school as a whole, shared with us his thoughts on what a successful applicant looks like. And so, take this information with the realization that it's one person. It's one admissions member. So, every school looks for something different. Every admissions committee has a different job, a different role when they're evaluating students. And so that's why it's hard to give concrete advice to you because every school is different. Every year it's different. So take that with a grain of salt, but a lot of great information that I hope you can use today as you move forward on your path to becoming a physician. 
I do want to thank three awesome listeners for taking a couple minutes and leaving us five-star ratings and reviews in iTunes. We had uh, Lessa RF, who said, the best podcast for pre-meds, especially non-traditionals such as myself. She said, she, she, the subject is A++++++. That's awesome. I wish I could put that into my AMCAST application. We had Pearson said, excellent podcast, ter- terrific podcast for diverse medical and pre-medical audience. And RJ Stowe 2 says, I'm new to this podcast and have selected podcasts randomly, but every one I've chosen has incredibly benefited my journey. Awesome. Thank you, RJ Stowe 2. Thank you to those three people. If you haven't taken a minute or two to leave us a rating and review, that's okay. You can do it right now. Literally, it takes, it takes about a minute or two. You go to medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes, and you can leave the rating and review there. If you listen on Stitcher, you can rate us in Stitcher's app or online. And uh, yeah, so we greatly appreciate it. That increases our visibility in iTunes, so when other students are out there looking for something to listen to, they can find us. We want you to continue this conversation. If, if you liked what Dr. Cavazos had to say, if you want to share some stories or, or questions about the MD-PhD world, go to medicalschoolhq.net slash 67 as in episode 67. That is our show notes page. And at the bottom, there's a comment section where you can leave some comments and we can continue this conversation. You can also say hi to us on Twitter. I'm at medical school HQ. Folks, as always, I hope the information provided to you today will help better guide you on your path to becoming a physician. And as always, I hope you join us next time here at the medical school headquarters. (laughs) 